0: point but this week we're moving on to week three which is this all about fight the night how do we live in freedom how do we live life and life to the full uh, and this week we're looking at this idea of an enemy in the camp so you're ready for this yes. just a few of you if you're ready for you can stay if you're not you can just go yeah it's fine do any of you uh, this will test my slideshow works uh, do any of you know who this man is anyone None of you have heard of Eli Cohen, no, none of you? Okay, uh, so he's probably one of the most famous and effective, it's probably the right word, uh, spies in history. And none of you have heard of him. He must be a very good spy, because none of, he, he's no longer a spy, don't worry, I'm not gonna give away his identity. Uh, but this is Eli Cohen, and I want to share with you um, a little bit of his story. So he was probably, one of the most influential spies before the six day war when Israel took back Jerusalem and Israel and there was a six day war and they account that he was probably the real reason one of the most influential wars of our time took place and it only took six days for a full war. One country that was still forming versus a united Arab nations of three countries. This small ragtag bunch of Israelis came together in six days, took over a whole land, and defeated three armies. This man here was one of the main reasons they managed to do this. Eli Cohen, he was a spy in the Arab nation at that time. He was a spy in what we would now call Israel. He was there behind enemy lines. And I want to talk about him a little bit because I think it gives a little bit of insight in terms of fight the night because I think Eli Cohen can... His story of being a spy can actually help us a little bit, understand some of the tactics of the enemy when he's trying to take over the territory of our lives. Because who knows that Eli Cohen was massively effective in what he did. He was so effective that he became so influential within the Arab army that he was mixing and dining and sitting with captains and colonels. And so doing so, what he said to them was there's a place called the Golan Heights, and I've had the privilege of going there, and it's basically the highest point in Israel and you can see everywhere. And up on top of there, still to this day, are massive encampments and massive turrets because from there, you can bomb the whole of the land. And so what he did was he said to the generals, and I don't know how he did this, hey guys, can I go up there with you? And do you know what they said? Yeah, all right, sure. So the generals took him up to the top of the mountain and when he went up there, he walks around and he had no idea what he was about to find, which was there was, Tons of guns, tons of anti-military aircraft bomb, everything. And not only that, there was loads of army up there. There was loads of soldiers up there. He was like, what can I do? So he then went to the generals and they were having dinner and they were chatting. He was trying to help and he said to them, I've got a great idea. When we're up there, it's one of the hottest places here, isn't it? Like, yeah, he said, what we should do for the people who are here is build shade for every soldier and every encampment that's here. And what I suggest we do is this. It would look really suspicious if we built tents. What we'll do, we'll plant loads of palm trees. So at every base, where they're just literally desert land and a little hole in the ground with a massive anti-bomb missile, I don't know what it's called, we'll call it the missile thing. Uh, He said, let's plant trees next to each of those turrets. So when the men are sitting in the midday sun, blazing hot, they'll have the covering of the shade. Who knows what the generals did? They planted trees next to every single one of those encampments. So what do you think happened when Israel came to the Six Day War? What did they know? They knew where every single one of those uh, missile thingies was and that's where they attacked first. He was one of the most influential spies in terms of finding out routes in which they were just about to attack massive Israeli forces. And the Israeli army was so small that if you took out one lot of um, travelling food you would wipe out that whole section of the army. It was so small. So what he did then was relay the information. He did this all the way up until the Six Day War. And it's really down to him, they believe, that the Six Day War was one in six days. Because when they came to fight and the army turned up, they had everything they needed to know. They were super effective. All because there was an enemy behind the lines. There was a guy on the inside. But I love his story because... I want to imagine day one of his story. He's approached by um, the Israeli secret intelligence, and they say to him, We want you to become a spy and start to get inside information. I want you to imagine the first day he turns up behind their eyes how he must have felt and how terrified it must have been, being like, This could just be it. And if you you can read uh, some of his books, I really recommend them, uh, about his diaries that he wrote and the the travelling he had to do. But he goes in day one, and can you imagine on day one he turns up and he meets the first low-level captain, and he meets him and he says, I want to plant trees at military encampments. Who thinks at that moment they might think, this guy might be a spy? (laughs) No, of course he didn't. Because if he turned up and said, I want to plant trees next to missile thingies, they'd be like... That sounds a little bit, we've only just met you. And imagine he said, I'd also like to know where your route of aid is traveling through your, through your convoys. Could you let me know that? They'd be like, what's this guy doing? They would never, ever in a million years giving that information, but no, what did he do? He turned up, he started a conversation, he started making friends, started making influence, started building trust, and slowly by slowly, the captain's pulled out a chair, he said, sit down, tell us more. And over a series of weeks and months and what became years, he went from being an Israeli with no influence to one of the most influential uh, underminers of the Arab United Nations against Israel, so that a six day war could happen in six days. I'd like to call this effect the wedge effect. So, give me two seconds, I'm not running away. I have got still a talk to do. I'm still here. I want to call this the wedge effect. And I want us to kind of stick with this for the rest of today's session. This is what I want to get between these two things. Who knows, no matter how long I keep hitting that thing against, therefore, it's not gonna happen. If you do that of metal, do you know what happens if you hit something blunt and hard against two surfaces? If you hit them for long enough, what happens? They become so melded together, there's no way in a million years you're gonna be able to get this in between those two blocks. So, who knows what you do? You get a wedge. Something on this end that is so small and thin and actually can barely actually see. If you get a razor sharp axe, an axe is just a wedge on a stick. And the edge of it is so fine and so small and what happens is this little, tiny little thing just goes, could I have a cup of tea? To a captain in the army. And suddenly you're like, yeah. And then it's like, Oh, should we have dinner? Yeah. To the point in which the wedge is all the way in. And what at the beginning seemed like absolutely nothing. It was just a cup of tea. I just said hello to him in a corridor. I just accidentally bumped into him and I just engaged in a conversation. Suddenly turns into, I've got it in there with no effort at all. That right now, because of the small wedge, behind it can come the big things like, hey, I'd really like to plant some trees next to your missile turrets. And they're like, sounds like a good idea to me. I want to say that this gives us an amazing insight into how stuff like this happens. Because if it started with this, and if he turned up and said, this is what I want to do, no one in their right mind in a million years would be like, this sounds like a great plan, you're definitely not a spy, come on in. If you study any of the great spies in history, uh, which I did this week as a bit of a fun sideline to my McReefe, You realise it's true of all of them. Because no one's going to believe the big bits, but if you start nice and small, really little, just a little bit, it's alright. It's just a cup of tea, I'm your friend, I could be a little bit of an influence, okay. Suddenly you're going, how did this happen? And if you look at the reviews of the war, everyone's like, how did this guy influence a whole war? And then when they look back, it started with a conversation, a cup of tea, and a small wedge that led to an influencer who changed, literally, the outcome of a massive war. That one of the shortest wars in history, one of the most uh, effective ever. And that's because of the wedge effect. And that's what I want us to look at today, is that idea of the wedge effect. An enemy in the camp, and how much effectiveness that can have. But it doesn't start off uh, bold and like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to undermine the whole of your war effort. That's not what he did. And I want us to start to look at that. And the verse we're going to be pulling apart today, or kind of taking a lead from, is in James 4, 7 to 8a. Don't move on to 7 8b. That's what we are look at next week. So at the end of that sentence, you can look at next week. This is where we're going to be for the next two weeks, is in James 4, 7, onward. Oh, we'll probably do the whole of it next week, but this week it says this, so humble yourselves before God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and he will come close to you. I want to say to you today that, like Eli Cohen, the enemy is out there wanting to get a seat at the table of your life. Okay, he wants to get a seat at the table of your life. I don't want you to imagine that you've got these two seats and you're having a really nice dinner. Sorry, sorry, just making more checklist every week. And this is my life, and I'm sitting here at the seat of the dinner of my life table, and I'm eating, I'm having a great time, and I've got great friends preparing everything, I've got things that even God himself are putting on the table for me to eat. I want to imagine that, in my life, there is these seats around my table that plenty of people come and sit at. I want to say to you, what happens sometimes is, John, can I use you? You can be... This is not a statement about John, John is a really nice, lovely guy, <laughs> we are friends. I was around his house this week, we have no problems with each other. I'll oh, just stand, stand up for a second, is that right? Yeah. Thanks, mate. Just stand behind the chair for us. Yeah. Okay, I want you to imagine this. That I'll do the other way around. John, you can sit down. Sorry, mate. I'll just make you dance around the chair. <laughs> John is at the seat of his table, that is his life, where he's planning and thinking about things. He's thinking about his wife and his dogs and his rabbits and his carpet that's about to be fixed. He's thinking about all these things that are going on and he's got his table in front of him with all of his like, war plans for his life laid out. And what happens is this, someone comes to the table and says, hey John, can I have a seat? And John's like, well some people I want to have a seat at my table, we all get that, don't we? <laughs> there's some people like me probably to John and say, Ben, you can come in and have a seat at the table in my life. And suddenly John's plans are now with me as well and I start saying say to him, hey John, what are you doing with this? Why are you doing with that? Can I? I think you should do this, I think and we've probably all got friends out right? I think you should do it like this. I don't think that's quite right. I think we should do it this way or that way. I want to say to you what happens is the enemy who we talked about in week one comes along and he comes to all of our tables at the seat of our life with a huge, big plan of trying to undermine and destroy all of the freedom God's got So And he wants to get this massive lie into our life. And he comes to us and he says, I want to make you kill someone. John's like, whoa, I'm not up for that. (laughs) Go away, get away. I'm not up for no murdering. Please leave. And so then what happens is, here's a snide one. He comes along with a small wedge. And he turns up at John's table and he says, hey, John, man, that guy cut you up in the traffic lights, wasn't he, an idiot? And John suddenly goes, yeah, he was, wasn't he? John, mate, that neighbour you've got, aren't they annoying? Yeah, you know what, they really... Oh, mate, I get it as well, you know, life's a bit hard. There are people who really just get on my nerves, man. John, the state of this country. John, the state of your. What are wrong with all these people? Oh, you know what? It's right to be a bit angry, mate, because life's unfair. Why should it be so wrong for you? John, mate, I just get it sometimes? I get, re- I get really angry sometimes. John, do you get really angry sometimes? John, mate, next time that guy cuts you up, what you should do is honk your horn. Cause I had if you honk the horn, you feel a lot better about yourselves. You honk that horn. John, mate, honking the horn's not doing it. You know what you need to do? Wind down your window and give him a bit of, you know, the, rah! John's like, yeah, I'm gonna give, a bit of, give him some of that. And he's like, you know what, John, what you should do is it's then follow them. Follow that car, see where they go. You find out where they live. Go on, you do it, go on. You find, come on, John, I'm getting a bit, could you get me a cup of tea mate? I'm really tired, could you get me? And John's like, yeah, you know what? I'll make you a cup of tea and John, I've been here quite, can I... can I have a bit more, can I have some dinner tonight? Yeah, just stay at the table. And what started off as this small little wedge is now I'm behind the table sitting there like, oh, I'm in. Because to start with it's just a little, hey, never mind. we all feel a bit angry sometimes, which we do, which is absolutely fine. But the enemy comes saying, oh, I want to drive a wedge between John and God. And if I come to him and say, John, I want to destroy your relationship with the person you love the most, do you know what John would say? Jog on. You ain't sitting at my table. There's no space for you here. Because he doesn't come like that. Sometimes he does, and we're like, well, that was stupid. We're like, why would he bother doing that? Then he comes back later and he's like, would you just take this little bit? Just, just. It's alright, God judging it. Thanks so much. And we find ourselves all the time in those situations, don't we? These little, small, what we think are insignificant starts are the start of a wedge that one day you look back on and go, How did I end up here? People don't leave their house in the morning, and think today I'm going to have an affair. People start sitting in the office with someone having a little bit of a conversation. People don't become alcoholics overnight. It starts with, it's just a drink, it's just with friends. It's just because I want to have some fun and then suddenly it's like, I'm at home by myself drinking. It doesn't start off as a drug addiction. It starts off as a bit of fun with your mates and then suddenly before you know you're like, I'm not doing it with my mates anymore. It's not fun anymore. I'm just searching and hunting down for money. Oh, it's all right, I'm just an angry person. It's just the way I am. God still loves me. Does it really matter that I shout, holler, and abuse people as I drive down the road? Does it really matter? And suddenly we're in this position where this little wedge has come in where it started as a thing so silly that actually, now between me and God, there's this slow wedge starting to push in and in and in. I want to say just say. well then, is there any hope? Like, if we left it there, I'm sorry guys, this is a sad preach for all of us, but luckily we don't leave it there. Uh, we have got two great characters, or two great, uh, uh, not stories, is not the word, not the word story, I want to use the word, I wrote it down somewhere. We have got two great accounts, there we go, these are not stories, these really happened. Two great accounts that I'd like us to look at, that I think give us, this bible verse in practice and as humans we probably learn better when it's done wrong than we do when it's done right because when it's done right we're all a bit up like, well it's all right for them they've all got it together they're better than me so i like to look at a story where they got it terribly wrong and a story where they got it terribly right is that okay with everyone cool so this verse tells us the way we resist the devil is like this we must humble ourselves before god that's the starting position of this and then we must learn to resist the devil. And all the things, that little bit of wedge, we must learn to resist that. Because if we resist that, we haven't got to be dealing with massive blocks that have been put into our lives. But how does that outwork? So we look at these two amazing stories, and one is in Genesis 3, 1-7. If you've got your Bible, it's right at the beginning, three chapters in. If you've got anywhere past Genesis, if you're in your Exodus, the Vicarious Numbers, if you're anywhere else, come back a little bit. Uh, this is where we're reading from. It says this. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit of any tree in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat, God said. You must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. I want to say to you that if you've been in church for 10 minutes, I want to make sure that you don't stop. I've got a little pointer. I don't know if you can see it. I don't want you to stop just here, which is where historically Christians stop reading. I want to say that it then goes on to say, then she gave some to her husband. I want to say it doesn't stop there either who was with her and he ate it too. Whoever is blaming women for all of our problems, I would like to say to you, there was a man standing the whole time just being like, this is a bit awkward, I don't think I should. I want to say that this whole account took place and man was literally standing the whole time, just like, I think you got this, Eve. (laughs) I want to say to you that the problem with the world is not that woman messed it up. The problem is that man and woman both stood there and were like, I don't really know what to do. I want to say that that is massively important in Genesis 3. Both parties are there. Both parties are just as negligible as each other. I want to say to you that this Bible verse is phenomenal because whenever you read it, I get to that last verse and I'm like, I wonder how many times in my life I've just stood there and gone, yeah, all (laughs) right? Rather than saying, whoa, 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 what is going on? I want to say that this verse starts to show us uh, how they get it wrong. I want to start to show us some of the small intricacies to the text. When we start to look at this and start to say, you know what? Adam and Eve, there was a small wedge that started, that rapidly became a huge wedge in their life. I want to say it started here. One day, uh, he, so the, well, Richmond. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day, he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of these trees in the garden? I want to say that this next line starts the first problem, which is this. Engaging in a conversation and starting a dialogue with the enemy. What does that look like in real life? Because most of you aren't going to have serpents come up to you and sitting in front of you having a conversation. <laughs> if you do, uh, please come and see us and uh, we'll send around some pest control uh, to deal with that. I want to say to you today that the reality of what it looks like is our internal thoughts and thought patterns. It starts off with, oh, I'm just going to take a so-. prime example. Driving down the road, pretty woman walks past, you just glance. The next thought that comes is, take another look, another look, little wedge, it's just one more look, how does it even hurt, it's just another glance, and suddenly the small wedge, and if if you've been alive more than 20 years you'll know the rapid onset of things like this. The same as when you're drinking or you're aggressive or when you're um, struggling with pornography or drugs or drink. It always starts off with, it's just. I think if you hear yourself say ever, it's just, the next thing you do is deal with the just and say, actually, this just ain't right, rather than us engaging with it. But what happens here is suddenly, rather than just saying, no, that's not what he said, go away, Eve starts on this really interesting conversation. Of course, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden. Correct, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat or even touch it if you will die. And then suddenly, it should have ended there. Like, now that's done, Jog on, go away. I'm not interested anymore. No, nope. The devil with their replies. You won't die. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. That's a lie that I hear all the time, literally all the time. If I have a drink i feel calmer, if I smoke this i feel better, if I, if I just talk to that woman at work it makes me feel so comfortable and so loved. If I just talk to that man at work it makes me feel so safe and secure. It's just my eyes will be open and I'll be like, oh that's what I was looking for. We start to find stuff in other people. So the small wedge goes from being an idea to being something exactly practical. We start to do it the wedge just then starts to... And suddenly we find ourselves in moments where we go, how on earth did I end up here? You talk to people who have had horrific things happen in their life, like massive marital affairs, and you sit with them, most them will say to you, I don't know how I ended up here. You talk to alcoholics, I don't know how I ended up here. Drug addicts, I don't know how I ended up here. talk to people who are like, contagiously angry, who are vicious, you start talking to them, "I I don't know how I ended up like this. Because once it started off as a small wedge, a small little thing, like questioning, did God really say that? What's interesting is, is I'm going to geek out a little bit so you can give me five minutes of me geeking out. Is that alright with everyone? Cool. If you don't get this next bit, just have a little sleep five minutes and I'll wake you up. And there's a really cool study you can do, which I have done many times. but uh, It's to compare the two texts of Genesis 2 where God says stuff and Genesis 3 where it starts getting quoted again. Uh, if you've ever seen Chinese whispers, this is the first ever example of Chinese whispers that you'll ever see. Uh, It's right here. We've got Genesis 2, 16 to 18, compared to Genesis 3, 1 to 5. This is actually the conversation that took place. Shake your head a little bit, wake up, go into a bit of uh, Hebrew and Greek and some translation stuff. But in 16, this is the command that is given. It says this, and the Lord God, everyone say the red word. There we go. The man. Who? Thank you very much. Uh, you are free to eat from the tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat it, you will. Thank you very much. The Lord God says, "It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a suitable helper." Okay, let's just get one thing clear: who are the instructions given to? Thank you very much. Okay, so the man then it's his job to relay that information to the. Who was in the whole story who didn't say anything? The man. He he physically talked to God. I want to say to you that something really interesting starts to happen as uh, we start the first ever games of Chinese whispers, which is this. The enemy comes and he says, did God really say? You must not eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden. Of course we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. At this point, she starts free-reading a little bit and going with ad-lib. If you go to the uh, original texts, you can see this through and through because uh, we don't get all the connectors, you just get the main words, and you can really start to see a bit of translation error that's taken place, which is just going to happen. And it says this, God said, no, first wedge starts here. No. Said. I want to literally stick on the word. Everyone stay with said. Don't go anywhere. Just stay with said. It's in red, underlined and bold. Don't run away from that word. Did God, It says, God said. No. It says at the top, did God really say. They are two wrong words that are used. The word that is used in two is sava, commanded. A command is very different from said. Emma says to Ben, take the bins out. It's negotiable. Emma commands Ben to take the bins out. The bins are out. The subtlety of the wedge is this. The difference between a command and something someone has said. So straight away, the enemy's in there saying, did God really say? Even at that point and Adam should have said, no, he didn't say anything. He commanded us. He strictly forbade something. It was not a conversation piece with God. It was a command from him. Don't. But no, the enemy straight away starts the small wedge of saying, did he really say that? Did he really say that? And what you all understand is they're two different words. So when you were hearing it in the original language, you'd be like me saying because and don't. You'd be like, they're not not the same word. And that's what's amazing about it. The devil starts off by undermining straight away, did God really say? At that point, they sort of said, no, he didn't say, he commanded us not to. And then it goes on to say, again, that same word, it should have been commanded, but no, did God really say? And it just gets started, from this point on which the wedge, wedge starts. You must not eat or even touch it, she starts to add a few little bits in there that aren't in there. If you do, you will die. You will die. The word for die is mut. There, or mut, depending on how good your uh, Hebrew is. Uh, the word die is mut. Did God really say, you will die? You won't die? Yet again, if you're reading the original language, what you'll actually read is in the Hebrew over here, it says, you will certainly mut, mut, mut. In English, you will certainly die, die, die. Three times. That's three times in a row it becomes, in Hebrew, an idomim for dying, you shall die. Serious. If I said to you, you're going to die, 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 you'd be like, why is he repeating himself so much? It's probably because I want to communicate something really serious. But Eve and the enemy, kite right back, not die, die, not two times, just once, die. Starts taking the seriousness of the consequence out of the action. You're not going to die. If he said, you're surely not going to die, 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 you'd be like, whoa, I remember. And tell you about this die 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 situation. But it seems pretty serious. It becomes such an idiom in, in the culture of uh, Hebrew, in the culture of Israel, that it becomes actually a, a term that is usually saved for when someone breaks a command of the king or the ruler of the time. That They would say, "Dying, you surely shall die. You killed someone. You committed murder in Israel." They would say, "Mut, mut, mut," and everyone would know, "Dying." You certainly shall die. Serious, top level, big telling off. What does the devil do? Cuts him right back. Oh, is it really that bad? He didn't, even, he didn't say die, and actually he's correct. He didn't say that. He said, die, die, die. You're saying die. I also have to say that in here, we can see the small wedge effect taking place. The manipulation of what God said, how he said it, taking a command for something that he might have said, well, does it really matter anyway? To suddenly, the small wedge of, hey, do you want to have a conversation? Yeah, all right. Suddenly it becomes this huge wedge that we now, 2,000 years later, are still dealing with. Because actually what should have happened was right at the beginning. And please, is anyone in this room, never done anything wrong? Good, we're all in the same boat. Phew. If all of us were in that situation, I believe that's what we'd have done. Because the reality is all of us have done stuff wrong. All of us. All of us like Adam and Eve had an opportunity to say, No, that's not what he said. He commanded me not to live like this and I'm not going to go away. But instead we engage with the small, and we say, Ah, oh, it's only just one look, it's only just one drink, it's only just one thought, it's only just one thing. And the small little wedge gets in and suddenly we find ourselves The separation begins because the goal's ultimate goal for us who are Christians is to keep us separate from God and live in life and life to the full. I want to see in these two texts here how the enemy starts to work and create this huge wedge. Luckily, there is a better story, and we don't get stuck with this bad story. (laughs) Jesus comes along in Matthew 4 1 to 11, and we get this beautiful picture of Jesus being tempted in the desert. It says this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I would be hungry. Uh, The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, man should not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command the angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot even against a stone. And Jesus answered, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the table took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and all of their splendour. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus says, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. One of the best lines of the Bible, then the devil left him and the angels came to attend him. I want to say just here, there are some real subtle differences between the two texts here. One is this. Humble. Then Jesus, by his own decision, decided by himself to go into the desert for no apparent reason. Is that what it says? No. No. Then Jesus was. Led by the thank you very much. Led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And what was he doing while he was there? He wasn't just hanging around having a great time. He was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Who knows why you fast? So you can draw closer to God. So he's in the desert. He's been taken there by the Holy Spirit. And while he's there and he's about to be tempted by the devil, he is not wasting his time, not just building a nice little sandcastle castle just waiting. He's. I've got some time, I'm going to try and grow my relationship with Jesus. And so in the time of growing closer to God, and in the time where he is growing closer to the Father than he's ever been, he's got 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, to the point where he was very hungry, then the enemy comes, because I'm know about you. i a very hungry person. <laughs> if you ask my wife, I eat quite a lot of food, and when I'm hungry, I just want the food. Uh, and the devil comes and he knows what a human's biggest weakness is food. Some of you have got this new term, hangry, we start to use that now, a lot more in our modern culture. And the reality is, that's where I'm at. You come and see me while I'm a bit hungry. You're not going to get a very good answer. Come to me when I've had some food, or if you want to go for a meeting with me and you've got something really hard you want to talk about, feed me first, and then we'll, we can have a proper conversation. And the devil comes and he's like, it, um, the tempter came and said, "If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread." Jesus, at that point, doesn't go into a dialogue with the devil. Don't do that. Just tell him what it says. Just say, "It is written." Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes to the mouth of God. The end. Because what's happening right now, it's like this. We've got a chair and he's coming and the devil's going to put his hand on the back of the chair. And uh, maybe this has never happened to you, it's happened to me once or twice. If this happens. No thank you. Not today. No space. And that's what Jesus does. He's not engaging, he's not saying, well, what do you mean by that? How would the stones become bread? What sort of bread would it be? Would it be whole grain? I don't know. I'm gluten free. Where does it be gluten free? <laughs> and the conversation starts, and we laugh. And it's so true, because we, we, we can all think of moments where that thought started, can't we? Does it really make me I'm that angry anyway? It's just the way I am. Rather than saying, actually, no, God's given me a spirit of self-control. So devil, I've got a spirit of self-control, so therefore I'm not going to give in to my anger. Thank you very much. Wham, bam, thank you, man. The door shut. go away. Rather than this, actually, it's just, it's okay, just this time, just one more time. All of those things are just saying, well she doesn't say, actually I am pretty hungry, and I do know God can do miracles, just one loaf of bread. That'll do me. And then can you just go away? No, straight away. No, it says, you're trying to trick me. I know you're trying to trick me, I know one of your names is the tempter, I know one of your names is the deceiver, I know one of your names is the liar, so I'm guessing if you're offering me bread, it's a lie. So therefore, jog on. And so he goes through all these ways and all the things in which humanity, and if you look at these, these are all different ways in which humanity are tested in different ways by being tempted by power, by food, and by um, surrender to the enemy, and also by testing God. These are the three areas in which we're all tested. Just treat life itself. I wanna say to you that every single time this happens, Jesus does not engage in a conversation. He states facts back at the enemy. Scriptures based in truth, he quotes them back at him. And the devil's like, I've got no leeway here. Because it could be so easy to go on, couldn't it? It could be so easy then to just, I'm gonna give him a bit more of my own medicine, show him, and then we go off script. I don't know if you've ever gone off script before in your life. You've got a plan, decision you're going to make, and you're like, I've got it all in my head what I'm going to say. You get to the end of it, and you're like, I'm going to try and free it for a little bit, see what happens. Just free flow, see how. And suddenly the amazing plan you had starts to unfoil, unroll before you. You're like, how did this happen? Whereas Jesus is just like, no, it says this. This is what the Word of God says. The only time, the only time Jesus goes off script, can anyone guess where it is? It says, right at the end, away from me, Satan. For it is written. If there's one way you should engage with the enemy, it's this. Get lost. Be all, end all. And actually, we're quite lucky, because this is now in the Bible. <laughs> so now it is scripture. <laughs> so we can say, Jesus told you when you are in the desert, away from me, saying, because I know, worship the Lord your God, and serve him only. I will not serve alcohol, I will not serve drugs, I will not serve my anger, I will not serve my, the adultery you're trying to pull me into. I'm not going to serve the pornography. Whatever it is, I serve him only. Resistance looks like knowing the word of God and applying the word of God. It starts with a point oh, where did my slides go? Humble yourself before God. Jesus is led by the Spirit into the desert and is spending time with the Father. As we spend more time with God we will easily identify the enemy trying to get a seat at the table of our life. If we're not in God's presence, we're not in his word, how are we to know what is and isn't him? Do you know how they teach bank clerks to find fake banknotes? By showing them real ones over and over and over and over again until a fake one comes in and they just look at it, they don't spend forever studying the fake ones because the fake ones are all fake in different ways. Learn the original and every time a fake comes, you'll know it. So Jesus is out there, getting a strong relationship with his father so that when the false comes, he doesn't have to question, God, is it your will? Is it your will? And that can go for literally anything in your life. And as you grow in your faith, what you'll realise is, probably some stuff you thought was God's will in the early days, you're starting to realise. For me, when I became a Christian, I'm happy to say this here, uh, I became a Christian when I was 17, turned 18. In that little time frame, uh, when I first became a Christian, I used to go to a casino Friday nights. I was 17, used to go with my mates, that was illegal to start with. So it's go casino for Friday night. And I'll either win money or lose money. That's how casino works if you've never been to one, doing you lose. Um, then you go home. And so what I did was that Friday night to do that. Saturday I'd work. Sunday I'd go to church and put my winnings from the casino in the offering. And I did that for maybe like 10 weeks. And it was only when someone sat next to me and said, you're putting in quite a lot of cash each week into the offering. And then somebody shouldn't put like What's going on sort of thing? And then it was just in conversation over a cup of coffee. I was like, so I was at the casino on Friday night and I won all this money and i put it in your offerings. And they were like, huh? <laughs> it, interesting. Should we go for a Starbucks? I was like, yeah, I love a Starbucks. And then lovingly, salted with truth and love, like we talked about before, if we just go up to people and like, you're wrong. They'll be like, you're wrong, I'm off. If we sit with people and work with them, what I start to realize is, ah, there's a better way. There's a better way. And so I want to say to you that these small wedges that God starts to work through us, to, we can suddenly start to identify things, be being his word to identify what he doesn't want us to be doing. Don't we? It's just the truth. So he's be his word, but we also need to be in his word so that we are close to him. Because humility is this. You are stronger, wiser, tougher, faster, more faithful, more truthful than I am. I need you. When I'm at the gym and I'm doing a heavy bench press, do you know what I do? I say to someone, this might fall on me and crush me, could you stand behind me just in case it does? Because I'm humble enough to realise I'd like not to chop my head off at the gym because i let go of the bar. Yeah? But with God sometimes what we say is, I think I can do this bit by myself. I think I can do this bit by myself. I think I can start my day without you, God. I'll join you at some point. Humility is like Jesus saying, No, I want to be him all the time. But I want to be listening and learning and studying and understanding because what I realise is he is my help, he is my defence. It is whose word that defends us. Not Ben's word, Jesus's, God's word, the Bible. Which is God's word. So humility is saying, God, you've got the words, the strength, the determination I need to get through the temptation I'm about to find. So when Jesus walks into it, he's prepared because he's been with the Father. So often we don't spend any time with the Father and then the devil comes and we're like, maybe it is God. Maybe he ascended this stuff. Maybe he is part of his will for me rather than being like, no, even if he comes to me. I know God so well that I know that's not his purpose and plans for my life. I know that he's come to give me life and life to the full. And if I'm feeling like this has come to still kill and destroy, I'm going to move into a position of humility saying, God, I need you. And then I'm going to move into a position of resisting the devil. Jesus identifies the devil, his works, and his lies. And he does not engage and invite the guy to the table, but resists him with only the word of God and the command away from me, Satan. We resist the devil with the word of God and the command for him to go. Don't engage in a conversation. Don't engage with the second look. Don't engage with the, it's just one. It will be alright this time. It's just a conversation. It's just a... It's just a... Whatever that is for you, the juster, I think that's the first splaggish guard to be like, this is where I need to be. I need to now start to resist. Rather than getting the wedge all this way in and being like, well, I've let it in this far. Now I should try and resist it. <laughs> it's a bit too late. Oh, that's, that's, that's in a really bad position for you guys. It says this, put out the match, not the bonfire. Put out the match, not the bonfire. Who knows how easy it is to blow out a match? Gone. But so many of us take a match and then we get a little bit of wood. We're like, it's just a... It's now just a stick on fire. It's now just four sticks on fire. It's just just a little bonfire on fire. Oh no. Now it's a proper fire. Me just doesn't stop it. It encourages it to grow. At the beginning, the breath is what blows it out. Oh, yeah, get away. But the reality is if you try to blow on a bonfire to blow it out, you ain't going to get anywhere. And I want to say to you today, get used to the fact of identi- identifying what are the small fires that the enemy's trying to come to you with. Identify them and put them out when they're matches, not when they're bonfires. That today, I pray for us as a church, we be a church that learns to do this so naturally. But also, we learn to sit with people who aren't And humbly and out of love, show them the way. Because actually, when the wedge is in there, they need someone to sit with them in the midst of this. Help them understand how it started, how did they get here, how did this, why are we like this? What is the root behind this? How did the wedge get in there? Why is it there? Because in reality, when we invite a guest in, when they're sitting at the table, it's really hard to kick a guest out. Or worse than that, we become dependent on the guest to give us something we should have always been getting from God. Because that guest who, you know what, he's in my life because it's this or that. Whatever that is for you. And that gives me a comfort or a security or a strength or a power to get through tomorrow. And it's not God. It's really hard to keep that thing out. So if I got rid of it, what would be left? If I didn't do that, how would I cope with tomorrow? How would I go rid of the stress of my work? How would I do this? How would I do that? And that's why it starts off with humble yourself before God. So we go back to him, he is the solution. Next week, we're going to be looking at how do we actually deal with it when it goes wrong and the wedges in our life. What do we do when we're here? I want to say to you, if it's your first week at church, every Christian in this building is here at some point in their life, and God had to do something miraculous to get rid of it. No one is perfect. We all agree? Good. But God can do amazing things. Guys, I really want us to be a church that applies the word of God, doesn't engage in those silly conversations, the second looks, the juster, it's only one. I just need it because... But instead we start saying, God would you help me and I'm going to resist this with your word. If you're struggling with this sort of stuff, do not do it on your own. Don't walk through this journey on your own. Find an Adam who's actually going to speak. Who's going to say to you, Eve, that's not what God said. Eve, that wasn't the plan. Or say, Eve, I've got this. Devil, God didn't say that, God commanded it. And we ain't going to do it. Don't walk the journey by yourself thinking I can just do this on my own. I'm just going to fix it, just going to make it, just going to do it. Find people who will rally around you, who are loving, kind, and courageous, and bold. Who will speak truth, but also love through it. Don't just find people who are going to speak truth over you. It gets really annoying. Get people who will speak truth and walk the journey of love with you. Because then what will happen is you'll be like, God, thank you so much for this season. That's why I love church so much. Because that's where we find ourselves right now. And a builder with people who know truth. A builder with people who are going to sit with you through that tough time, through that hard time. And love you through it with the truth.